Mike's going to tell us a joke while she... <laughs> it's you, Mark. <laughs> Thank you. Morning, everybody. I'm Philippa, and I'll be doing the reading today. It's from James 3, and it's entitled, Taming the Tongue. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with great strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to also bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Thanks, Philippa. So the joke goes that um, Nikki lost her voice on the day of our wedding, and um, she literally couldn't speak. Um, I actually lost my voice this week. You can hear there's a little bit of a, a, a sort of husk to it. And um, the joke goes that Nick's lost her voice um, literally the morning. She woke up on our wedding day, and she couldn't pull off more than a whisper. You know, you lose your voice, and you can sort of, you know, say some stuff. She couldn't even do this, this. And she did her wedding speech quite literally through the back of her throat. And she spoke like this and had the mic right up to her mouth. And uh, basically, it was the most peaceful three days of our marriage. <laughs> Honeymoon for the first three days was like just so quiet. And eventually, her voice came back and she began to speak again. And uh, our marriage became real. But words matter. Words matter to James. Words matter to God. Words should matter to us. They should matter to you. Because James has this very intense uh, kind of eyeballing, looking closely at us and saying, the words that come out of your mouth are crucial. In the 1930s, uh, words became kind of world-changing. There was one man who managed to mobilize a whole nation by his words, possibly one of the greatest orators in history. A man named Adolf Hitler could mobilize a whole nation against a small people group and then into becoming a massive, powerful military force that threatened to take over the West as we knew it. 
It was his words that mobilized people. I don't know if you've seen those images of this man who could command a crowd and everybody is listening to the littlest and the biggest of his words. They are listening to what he says. It is an amazing gift that he had. Only one man had a speech more powerful, and it was the man, Winston Churchill, who managed to utilize his words in a moment of equally crucial importance. When Winston Churchill begins to call the allies, and he does a speech that is going to forever be remembered as the moment that turned the tide on the war. We'll fight them on the beaches. We will never surrender, said the British bulldog with his big wide cheeks. But it wasn't what he looked like. It was what he said that moved a whole nation, a whole military army to go and not surrender. Even in the midst of this ongoing war, I think World War II history teaches eight years long, 36 to 44, I might be wrong there. It was a long war. I think of Corrie ten Boom who made space in multiple homes to hide Jews during the German occupation of the Netherlands, changed the lives of so many. With just a few words, you can stay here, go there, whispering little words that would provide safety for people. Words matter. They have always mattered and they always will matter. And if you track where we're going through the book of James, James has been pressing in pretty hard. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you're probably feeling a little battered and bruised by James's very intense uh, sort of challenges to each of us. He's talking about real faith, and he doesn't seem to want to let us off. He says real faith has a kind of corollary. It has a follow-up of action. If if you've got a faith that has been uh, experiencing the grace of God, if you've really taken on the glorious goodness of Jesus Christ, uh, if you're new to the the gospel, a quick explanation is is as simple as this, is that we as as a church believe that God in Jesus Christ has come to humankind in amazing and beautiful love. God has done what what we could never do in living the life we should have lived, dying the death that we probably should have died as the rebels against God, but Jesus did it on our behalf. And amazingly, he rose again and he conquered sin and Satan and death and, and darkness that comes against us. And all who come to Jesus... It sounds too good to be true, and that's uh, one of the only times it really is too good to be true, is in the gospel. That all who come to Jesus can simply say, you know what, I want to exchange my sinfulness for your love. And in exchange, we get God's amazing grace. We get his love. We get a whole new identity. We get to enjoy God's love upon our lives so that we walk into the world not fighting for an identity, not fighting to say in our career, that's what's made me a man, not fighting in our other parts of life to go, this is why I'm valuable, but actually finding an identity that's given through the gracious love of God in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus started the kingdom of God. And by the power of the Spirit, we too participate in this new kingdom, this age to come, which has broken into our world, and we get to be part of it moving forward. You see, James has been talking about receiving this grace, this amazing love. And then he says, if you've received it, you're going to start to act upon it. You're going to start to live it out. It's not going to sit idle. It will percolate new life. You've got a new ecosystem. There's good soil now for your life to begin to flourish, for your behavior to begin to change. 
And now he says, you know what? In, 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 there's going to be works of faith, but one of the most crucial works of faith in your life are going to be your words of faith. The words that come out of your mouth are either going to be spoken by faith or they're going to be spoken without faith. They're going to be spoken out of your own interest to do whatever you would prefer to do, to get what done, whatever you would prefer to get done. And when it comes to words, I don't know if you've picked this up, but there seems to be two gutters we could potentially slip into when it comes to speaking. The, the one gutter is verbal superstition. It's not going to rain tomorrow. Touch. We know it's going to rain tomorrow, though. But we do things like that. We, we don't want to say certain lines because we're worried that the words may actually become true. It's true of all of us. Somewhere deep down, whether it's a, a lot or a little, we're worried to say certain things because we've been brought up in a culture that says, if I say it, it may happen. Words do have power. And it even gets into the church. There's been loads of teachings whereby people take words and they almost make them overly superstitious, i.e., be careful of what you say because it may actually end up happening. And it slips into superstition to the point that we don't allow ourselves to say anything for fear that God, who robotically is listening, goes, oh my gosh, they said that, must do, must do. And he starts to move based on our words, and there becomes this gutter of verbal superstition. Anybody grow up in a house with a bit of verbal superstition, where you were told that certain things were not allowed to be said because if you said them, they would happen? Slipping up your hands gingerly. It can be quite a painful experience. It can be quite manipulative, actually. There's the other one is just verbal thoughtlessness. The other gutter is not superstition, but, but thoughtlessness. You just say whatever you want, whenever you want. Who cares what you say and when you say it? Words just float out into the air. People can do with them whatever they want. I probably grew up on the side closer to superstition. I don't know if you remember, the 80s and the 90s in the Christian world was about a lot of the power of the spoken word. And if you kind of said the wrong thing at the wrong time, who knows what might happen? Words do matter to God, but we should be careful of slipping into either side. Suppose the thing sticks and stones may break my bones. Remember that one? But words will never harm me. <laughs> well, no, that's not true. Words have hurt every single one of us. They've harmed us to the core. In fact, words have probably had the greatest power to shape us, both positively and negatively, more than almost anything else that's happened over our lives. And when I say words, I may also be mentioning the lack of words that may have come over our lives. The silence. The need for words to fill vacuums of meaning, vacuums of identity, vacuums of purpose, vacuums of love that we've walked into the world going, has anybody loved me? And so James says it's so incredibly hard to bridle the tongue. It's so difficult. There's this amazing problem in all of our lives in that we just struggle to control this little piece of meat between our teeth. Move it around in your mouth. Mask or not, feel that thing. It's powerful. It's powerful. It has this ability to, to move and shape language that comes out of your mouth. Think about it for a moment. They come out of your mouth. Other people hear it. Even you hear it. 
and they shape your perception of reality, of what's really going on, of what matters and what doesn't, of what's valuable and what's not valuable. These amazing words that are created through this uh, incredible, beautiful science that God created that pop out through your vocal cords and suddenly they create meaning for the world. They shape human hearts. They shape the world. They shape wars. They shape history. And Jesus, amazingly, and, and, and we've got to remember that James, when he's writing, is writing as one who walked with Jesus. So this is a guy who's writing to these churches, if you remember. They're predominantly the sort of Jewish diaspora, people spread out all over, meeting probably in synagogues. They've started to follow Jesus. They realized, they've, they, you know, they, yes, they've got Jewish heritage, but Jesus was the Messiah. And so they're trusting in Jesus as the Messiah. And as he writes to them, he's writing as a group of people who's going, guys, I've been with him. I heard his words. I know how powerful words can be. I experienced what it was like when he looked over that lady and he said, your faith has made you well. Or when he looked at her and he said, go and sin no more. And she looks up and there's no one there to stone her. Instead, there is a loving Jesus who says he loves her and he says, now go and sin no more. The, the words that James experienced coming out of the mouth of Jesus meant that he's writing this from firsthand encounter that words really matter. It was Jesus who also said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks in Matthew chapter 12. You see, the problem with our words is that they come from somewhere. There's a source. You don't just say stuff because, you know, you want to say it. You're not a random kind of person who just goes from one place to the next, and who knows what might pop out of that mouth of yours. No, no, no. Our words come from a store of thoughts and ideas and concepts that we have stewed on, that we've thought about, that we've lived in, that we've begun to believe. And, and that becomes a, co a cocktail or a concoction that lives inside of our hearts that we then react out of that. And as we respond to what's going on, out comes words. And those words reveal, says Jesus, what's actually going on inside of us. You'll know the feeling. You have an argument. Things are quite polite most of the time. You know, even at church, I'd say the majority of us, you walk out into the cafe, you're going to get the, the best part of the heart. You know, you're going to get the icing on top of the cake. You're going to get all the cool stuff. But when you have a, a bit more time with someone, a loved one, a spouse, a family member, and suddenly it gets a little heated and you've been spending enough time and you've been rubbing shoulders. I remember playing computer games with my brother and uh, we would be like literally rubbing shoulders and we'd be sharing the chair and we'd try to like do the tap tap game. I mean, I'm old now. And uh, we'd be trying to like win the, the athletics thing and suddenly you realize this guy is driving me insane. He's taking over the keyboard and suddenly you look over and you go, hey, and the next words that come out of your mouth are not church words. And you speak to him and you go, oh my gosh, this was living in here. And it's all because you've spent enough time. The, 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 the reality is that time spent kind of reveals what's inside of our hearts. It's like a bit of a litmus test or a, a test of uh, like a pool test. I think there's a lovely image of that where you, you, put, you check how much acid is in the pool and you give a little bit of a tester to, to work out what's going on inside there, what's really in there. Well, your and my words are a true test, a, a real acid test of what's happening inside of our hearts. Listen to yourself for a while. Go back to your speech. 
That's why it's so lovely to be in community because community is a kind of mirror to our lives who do get to listen to how we speak and how we interact because people eventually get to see after a while what's actually going on. The speech patterns of our lives begin to reveal the factors that are dominating our heart. And so James talks about stumbling in our speech. Stumbling in our speech. What is, what is stumbling in our speech? I think it's not just lying and gossip and false accusation, because I think we, we can all uh, know those ones. It's often as subtle as a tone or a word choice. What we didn't say, as I mentioned. Like I mentioned, often what we don't say is more harmful. But what James is talking about here, I think, is so much more about our heart. It's about our tone. It's about our word choices. When we say things, right thing at the wrong time, know that one, or just wrong thing, and you think it's the right time, but you know you just want to say it. You just got to get it out there. In chapter 1, verse 9, James wrote that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So much of our talking is linked to listening. In most of your talking, finishing other people's sentence or one-upping them on a story that they just told you. Hey, we have become experts at one-upping. We listen for a while, and just when it's about to be finished, we tell our better story. We love that, right? So let's look at just a bit of James's teaching here. Let's try to understand a bit of this beautiful teaching of how do we tame the tongue. In James's, I think people were getting to position. So in verse 1, if we could pop that up, um, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, it seems like there was a culture there where basically people were aspiring to teaching. You know, in the, the Greek sort of Hellenist, Hellenist world, um, oratory was a real part of it. And, and people who could speak publicly got quite a lot of prestige and could even get fame or wealth. And so the church became a bit of a platform at times that could be abused for those ends. And so he's writing and he's going, He's not saying teaching is bad. He's certainly not saying people shouldn't teach. Uh, the scriptures are clear. We need good, ongoing, consistent Bible teaching. But he's saying, man, be careful. And be careful of why you teach and be careful of what you teach because this is going to come uh, back to bite you if you do it wrong. So let's keep moving. It seems like James now talks about self-control in our speech in verse 2. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Ever ridden a horse? Seen the tiny little bit in its mouth? Ever felt the power of a horse and the strength of its legs? And to think that you move that huge animal with a tiny piece of steel stuck between its teeth. He's trying to say that we too need to understand that uh, if we can control our tongues, we can have greater control over our whole bodies, over our whole lives. Uh, he talks a little bit about this perfect man. He's not saying that we can become perfect people and sinless in every way. That one is waiting for us on the other side of our passing into the age to come. But Douglas Moo says it like this, when believers exercise careful control of the tongue, it can be presumed that they're also able to direct their whole lives in their proper divinely charted course. 
They are perfect. But when the tongue is not restrained, small though it is, the rest of the body is likely to be uncontrolled and undisciplined too. He's kind of saying the, the, the way that we control our tongues is like a fountainhead discipline. If you can control the tongue, there's a good chance you can control a lot of the rest of your life and your body. He carries on. He says, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds. Uh, though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pirate, pilot, <laughs> pirate <laughs> directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Let me show you. I've actually got you a beautiful example. Better hope I come back. Here is a ship or a boat. And this is probably larger than normal of a rudder. Actually, if you can see that. A rudder, this is accentuated. Our, um, Noah Kerverak tried to make one for us because the one was actually broken. But look at that. Comparably, they are so different in size. And James is trying to say, just because it's small, just because you can use it so easily, just because you're so comfortable in using it, don't assume just because of that, that it doesn't have great power. Josie did the horse's mane for me this morning. What do you think? She said, Dad, you have to show it. I said, is there no bigger horse in our, our home? She said, no, this is the best we got. <laughs> Let me tell you, if you could find a bit to fit this horse, it would be the size of like half a needle. Think about that. The, the comparable size to uh, kind of effect ratio is just unbelievable. And what he's saying is he's saying words direct your trajectory. The words you use are, are literally shaping where it is you are going to go. Think about it. Not just where you're going to go, where we're going to go. We know this so profoundly. That's why we withhold encouragement when we're jealous and we don't want someone to go ahead of us. We don't say well done because we don't want them to feel the encouragement so that they keep succeeding. We hold on because we're jealous. And if they keep succeeding and we get left behind, the gap grows and we feel awful about it. And so we withhold. We change the trajectory. Some people even will use discouraging words to try hold other people back. It's called tall poppy syndrome. One person starts to progress and people find ways to chop them off so that everyone's the same. Do you know how most often we change the trajectory of our futures and others? It's through our words. Words that can shape our trajectory are through holding our tongue in an argument, through consistently being honest, and that often results in growing trust. The more honest you are, the more trust there is. The more trust there is, the more partnership there is. The more partnership there is, often the more fruit there is in our lives. Hey, not responding to that first flirty bid for attention that comes your way from a work colleague or a friend or a, a person at school. Suddenly, you, you could make them feel like they know they want to feel because of the words they use, or you could help them to understand in love what they need from you and what they're really going to get. If we use our words wisely in getting to know people, we build community around us. We get to care. We get to share stories. 
Imagine we didn't know the stories of the people in our life group. We are rich beyond imagination. Thanks, Mark, for leading us so amazingly in that time of, of just financial giving and generosity. I felt like going, God, thank you. Wow. But imagine we didn't know the stories of our friends and family members in this community. We sat on Wednesday nights and we listened to each other's stories. We're going through, uh, the guys in our group are going through a book called The Intentional Father. I'll mention more about it next week. I want to advise that book to anyone. But we started listening to our stories of our relationships with our dads. We started listening to the wounds that live deep inside of us. And we realized that as a bunch of men, wow, we've got a lot in common and we are very hurting because that's the story of a fallen world. But the healing that came from hearing the words of our brothers spoken to each other and listening to each other's stories began to shape each other's trajectories. I think of the words that were spoken over us as kids, the words that were spoken to us, how they shaped who we've become. That was our exercise on Wednesday night, literally being able to see that who we are today is because of what we heard and experienced when we were kids. You can't avoid it. You cannot pretend it's not true. And James is saying exactly that. This little rudder, these little words are shaping our futures. They're heading us in a direction. He carries on in verse 5 and he says, you know what? Words can also be disproportionately destructive. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small Fire. Good timing for this, eh? We've had a week of fires. I don't know if they ever got to the bottom of where this uh, table view one started. I know that Lawrenceford has also had a blaze that's been going for uh, a long time. And uh, we drove through uh, on the N1 last week, Thursday, and it's just a big gray smog everywhere you go. It's just thick and laden with this experience of fire. To think that that fire started with such a small spark. To think that it started in such a small place and has had such a radical impact. They knew this well. They lived in a Mediterranean climate as well. James is writing to a group of people who are also surrounded by kind of dry Mediterranean olive trees and those kinds of things. And he knew how quickly they could move and how destructive they could be. Don't you look back on some words? I'll never forget the, uh, the feeling I had. I think my parents have probably forgotten it. I almost don't want to bring it up because of the frustration I feel, but I probably wasn't getting my own way with something so pathetic it's not worth mentioning. I can't remember what it was. All I remember is I'm sitting in the back of the car, and out of my, words come, out of my mouth come these words, I hate you. Oh, I just remember the feeling like I had just said that to my own parents, which I knew wasn't true, but I had said it, and this spark had been sent, and I can't imagine what it feels like as a parent. I haven't heard those words yet, thank God, from my own kids. But what a spark, what a powerful flame gets sent. I think we can do it more often and more regularly than those overt, very uh, hectic words. I think sometimes it's the more gentle the more kind of subversive words that we use that can be so profoundly painful and disproportionately destructive. Verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, this is quite a confusing portion of Scripture that most commentators go, we think we understand what he's trying to say, but it's really complex. And sometimes when you read the Bible, be humble, going, I don't fully know what he was trying to say to his original audience. And we don't fully know exactly what he means by this. We do know that he's saying it is immensely powerful, profoundly dangerous. And he seems to be saying that your tongue, according to Michael Eaton, can act like a double agent. Maybe you want to go back to the World War II analogy. You basically, you've got an agent who comes in who says he's a spy for, uh, for Germany, but he's actually working on behalf of, uh, of the British, moving into and giving information. That's a double agent. You basically, you're pretending you're on behalf of one people, but you're actually doing it for the others. And sometimes the tongue can be a bit like that. It seems like it's saying, you know what, I love God and I love these people, but sometimes it can betray you and actually do exactly the opposite. And he's saying, be very careful. Douglas Moo says, presumably James wants to suggest that the tongue contains within it the sins of the fallen world. Jesus claimed that whatever comes out of their mouth defiles a person and explained further that the mouth expressed the heart in which are found evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. No other member of the body perhaps wreaks so much havoc in the godly life. The tongue is this fire. It's a beast that seems like we as people simply can't tame. I hope we're feeling kind of humbled, right? Our tongues are profoundly important in our lives. And they're profoundly important to James, and they should be as we follow Jesus, as we grow as followers of Jesus. There's not one of us who are followers of Jesus who get off the hook on this one. With it, our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. What a thought, eh, when we speak poorly of people. The tongue shows that there's a kind of doubleness about us. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. James is getting passionate. Even in his writing, you can feel him shaking his fists. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. His landing points around the tongue is that he seems to be talking to source and identity. He says, if you want to reign in this profoundly dangerous thing called your tongue, you need to go to the source of what's driving the tongue, and you need to go to the identity. Where do I get that? Well, a spring. Does a spring uh, pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? He's going, what, where, where, you want to know what's, where the, 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 the spring, what's coming from the spring? Go to the source and see what's coming out. Everything that comes from the top of the spring is going to be the same as what's coming from the source. Just go to the source. He's going back to the teachings where he sat on the, on, the, on the mountains with Jesus and heard these teachings. And Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he's saying, do you get it? 
Do you get it? That if you keep filling this heart of yours with all kinds of junk and gunk from your gossip magazines and your friends and Netflix and whatever other trash you're watching and you're spending more time filling your heart with all the Facebook profile updates and all that stuff and you read and you read and you read and then you think that out of this heart is gonna come some beautiful life-giving words that are just gonna flood over the world, you better think again not going to happen because you're filling this source with a whole different type of uh, water. Don't think fresh water will pour out of the mouth if there's salt water in the soul. Go to the source. Relook at the source. I thought Michael Eaton, you know, he's just so filled with beautiful gospel encouragement. I thought he was in this moment going to say, you know what, you just need to soak up in the gospel and just receive God's love and it's just going to change the way you speak. You know what he says? He says, it's a discipline. <laughs> he says, it's a discipline. He says, if you want to get good at this, you need to find yourself disciplining yourself to reminding yourself that what comes out of your mouth needs to align to what God is putting inside of your heart. Are you tending to the source? Are you tending to your heart? Are you facing the, the demons that want to try to compare, that are easily jealous, that are always wanting to be better than, never satisfied with what you got, always looking, wondering if you could have more, that discontentment? Don't think that if you're not tending to your heart that your words are going to be you know, perfectly aligned to the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. It's incompatible. You've got to tend to the source, to your heart. But he also says, there's another clue. You've got to sort out your identity. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It's like really simple. What are you fundamentally? If you're a fig tree, you're going to produce figs. It's as simple as that. If you're a grapevine, you're going to produce grapes. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you should produce Christ-like character in your words. Nix and I uh, sort of started running. Um, I started about seven years ago. Nick started about five years ago. And we never thought of ourselves as runners. It's just like we, I enjoyed all kinds of sport, but running was not a thing for me. Uh, I began to enjoy it. Somebody actually gave me a, a GPS watch. And the moment I got this GPS watch, I realized, wow, this is pretty fun. You can race yourself and you can improve. And there's a whole bunch of thrills that you can get. You guys are looking at me going, you will never win me over to running. I get it. I'm, I'm going to stop selling running. But something profound happened in a matter of about six months. And the same thing happened to Nick Saswell. In that, for a while, you're running going, I know some runners. And you feel like you're almost an imposter. Like, I'm, I'm trying to run, but I'm not a runner. And then something switches in your mind. You run for long enough. And suddenly you look at your past and you look at your life and you go, I'm a runner. I am a runner. And when you begin to believe I'm a runner, that sense of identity, it's just so profoundly scientifically proven that when you understand who you are, your behavior shifts so much more profoundly. Suddenly you go, I'm a runner. That means that Monday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, I run. And I'm going to be disciplined about it because that's who I am. And I watched with Nix. She suddenly went from, you're a runner, to I'm also a runner. And she started going, oh, you think you got Monday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. You can have Tuesdays and uh, Fridays, actually. I was like, okay. She's also a runner now. She believes it about herself. And suddenly behaviors begin to change because of what you understand yourself to be. 
The gospel is exactly the same. If you want to change your behaviors, if you want this tongue of yours to begin to be one of transformation, you need to understand fundamentally above every other identity that you connect yourself to, you are a child of the living God. You are loved by God. You are made by him, for him, in him, and you are safe because of him. And because of that, you're a child. You're a son or a daughter of the king. And so you behave accordingly and you speak accordingly and you begin to wake up in the morning and you go, I'm a child and so God, I consecrate every part of me. Richard Foster talks about this beautiful discipline where you wake up and you go from head to toe. You go from your head, your mind and what you think and you go down to your eyes and what you see and you go through your tongue and you go, what do I say? And your ears and how do I listen? Imagine every morning you dedicated your whole body to the glory of the gospel and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And you say, here, all of this is for your glory because I'm yours. I'm loved by you. I'm made for another world. I am now part of that world and I'm living in this world. And I want to represent that world into this world as best I can. I'm a child of God. I'm made for the age to come. But the age to come has broken in to my soul through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel. And here I am. Let's live, God. And suddenly you are. Not you hope to be. You are. I'm going to ask us to stand. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to do a little bit of an identity exercise. I want you to answer this question as honestly as you possibly can. Who do you fundamentally believe yourself to be? Who do you fundamentally believe yourself to be? Who are you? What makes you tick? What's most important about you? Believe that this morning, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, wants to just snap off that sense of imposter syndrome. You feel like you're not meant to be here. Maybe here in church, but, but maybe in, in the inner circle of God's presence. And I want to remind you today that you're not in the inner circle. You're not in his love because of how well you did this week or how badly you did this week or year or decade or life. You're in his presence because of how well he did for you. You're in his presence because of his death on your behalf. You're in his love because he chose you before you were even born. You are his. And your speech and how you live and behave is a product of your understanding of his beautiful love over you, of who you are. Next week, we're talking about courage. But I want to call you to courageous faith today. I want to call you to courage today, to, to not Feed the imposter syndrome in your mind that runs around going, I'm not worthy. I'm not quite. Maybe next year. Keep postponing a deep encounter with God. I want to call you today 
to say, today, I trust you. Today, I believe. I thank you that I am not an imposter in your presence, but I am made for your presence. There is no better place in all the world than to be with you, God, in your presence. To be loved by you, to be given an identity as a child of yours. Some of us maybe need to do that for the very first time. To say, here I am, Jesus, I trust you. It's very simple. That's all you really need to do is you need to say, I realize my life isn't enough to catch your eye and to, to get me into your presence. It's actually your life that you lived for me that gets me into your presence. And you loved me before I was born and that you did what I could never do in Jesus Christ. And you say that in your own words. You say, Jesus, I trust you to forgive me. I trust you to receive me. And I trust you in that I will follow you. I'll follow you wherever you take me. Because I trust that you love me beyond anyone else and anything else. More than my career, more than my companions. Jesus, I pray this morning that as we are together in this place, that we would encounter your love, that you would break away from us any sense that we're not allowed, and that we would walk into your presence confident, and that, God, we'd be those who use our tongues to bless and to breathe life. I really do feel like God wants to empower us, our minds and our hearts to a fresh use of our tongues. That this week we are going to breathe life over people because of the words we speak. And in fact, because of the words we choose not to speak. Jesus, as a group of people, we consecrate our tongues. Won't you do that? Won't you just give your mouth, your words over to Jesus for this week? Maybe start by repenting of the words you know you shouldn't have used. Go through them quickly. Take a, take a moment. Some of the stuff you wish you hadn't said. It's one of the best ways we coach our hearts. Give you some time. Now in the light of the gospel, commit to the kind of usage of your words that you want to have this week. Describe them in, in your own words to Jesus. Describe the kind of words, the kind of way you want to speak this week. As you speak to the Creator who used words to breathe life into the world. Jesus, we want to be a community who brings life to the world not just through generosity of time and talents and treasures, but generosity of vocabulary, the words we use, that God, this week, we would be the kind of people who walk away from situations leaving others feeling loved, feeling encouraged, feeling thought about, feeling cared for, feeling like they had a little taste of Jesus Christ because of the words that came out of our mouths. Even today, even as we walk out of this meeting, May our tongues, like rudders on a boat, shape the course of ours and others' futures because of how careful and wisely 
courageously and lovingly, we use our tongues. We consecrate, we give our words to you today. As we sing these words together, we sing under the beautiful words that you spoke over us. It is finished. We thank you for the words. Father, forgive them. You spoke over us as we were turning our backs on you. You were shouting in beautiful, compassionate, powerful love. Father, forgive them. Oh, we walk towards those words today. We sing in the beauty of those words. Our hearts rest in the wonder of your words. We anticipate you speaking over us this week. Your words of life and love, and we want to do the same to those around us. Thank you for your gospel word. That is the word that shapes all words. Let's sing. <laughs>